When I was a medical student, I wasn't sure if my faith had a place in the way I would practice medicine. I needed to see this done well, to have it modeled for me in order to overcome my hesitation and fears. Through their example and friendship, the members of the Catholic Medical Association have inspired me and showed me that yes, this can be done. Come and see how Novus Medicus, the young members of the Catholic Medical Association, can provide you with a sense of belonging and challenge you to use your gifts as a faithful Catholic in the medical community. Visit our website, novusmedicus.org, to connect with us today and start your journey to live out your faith to the fullest in the calling of medicine. Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Chris Stroud. And this is the show where we and our guests will discuss relevant health-related topics and always from an authentically Catholic perspective. Now, Dr. Doctor is brought to you in part by the generous underwriting of our friends at CMF Curo. You can learn more at mycatholichealthcare.org. Live your Catholic faith in your healthcare with CMF Curo. Today's show will air across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Rejoining us on the show will be pediatrician Gwyneth Spader. Uh, Gwyneth has a great interest in uh, viral infections, and she's going to talk about this crazy triple-demic thing that's going on, the increase in RSV in kids, influenza in kids, as well as maybe even COVID-19 if it's really happening in kids. We're going to find out more from her uh, because hospitals are filling up. I mean, aren't they, Chris? You, you just had an extreme experience recently. Yeah. I mean, you might say, how is, how is this relevant? It's relevant. Uh, the combination of influenza and, uh, and the RSV or the respiratory syncytial virus has hospitals just packed, um, and especially the emergency rooms. And you and I were talking before we started this episode just a few days ago here in our community. I couldn't get a patient out of the emergency room and into a hospital bed because all the beds were full. Uh, and so it, it really is a tough combination. And it, it could just be me. Maybe I'm not paying attention, but I don't feel like we're hearing nearly as much uh, in social media and in the news about all that's going on now with RSV and regular flu, because it, it really is taking a serious toll, if nothing else, on healthcare resources. Yeah, I was recently on the CDC website where they keep pretty good track of the flu cases. And compared to the last few years, it is incredible, the, the steep rise of the curve. And in fact, one out of every four people tested who think they might have the flu have the flu. That's just an incredibly crazy high number that that many people have influenza. In fact, the stats so far, and we're only, you know, a month or two into the flu season, so far in the United States, as of last weekend, 8.7 million flu illnesses, 78,000 hospitalizations, 4,500 deaths. That's just nuts. Now, this is all comers. Tonight's episode is mainly going to focus on kids, but we've got something insane going on with respiratory syncytial virus or RSV, which is typically a disease of, of babies. Right, of newborns and neonates. Um, and we'll be sure to put that CDC website that you referenced uh, in the program notes that go with this episode. We would tell you, but it's sort of a long, drawn-out um, HTML, but we'll get you that link. So if you want to follow that uh, and get up-to-date numbers, you certainly can. But it, yep. it really is, a, it, it's, it's sort of an understated, I'm almost afraid to use the word pandemic. You said tri, triple, uh, tridemic, I think you said at the beginning. Triple demic, yep. But it, it really is remarkable and much more so, I believe, than we've seen in years past. And I have to wonder, I can't wait to ask our guests, if any of this has to do with a post-COVID effect. And by that, I mean, uh, are we more or less likely to have gotten our flu shot because of all of the uh, of the hoopla that came about the COVID vaccine. I wonder if in people's minds, maybe those are getting commingled, or is there something unusual going on like that that's making flu seem to be a lot worse this year? Well, there's also something they're calling the immunity gap that we have lost because of uh, the lack of protection or the lack of, lack of Last of contact with those viruses that we normally would have had the last two to three years. Uh, as I've heard it said, uh, masks were 
somewhat effective at helping reduce COVID transmission, but extremely effective against influenza. I mean, the numbers the last two years were minuscule compared to normal, but I don't think our society wants to go back to wearing masks to reduce influenza. Do you, Chris? No, I'm, I'm going to go with a universal no on that one. <laughs> uh, at least that's my vote. Now, this is tricky. Uh, don't shoot the messenger. But um, while there's plenty of room to debate the pros and the cons and the ups and downs of the COVID vaccine, I just don't think that's true with the flu shot. Uh, it actually can help you not get the flu. But of course, people still get the flu after they've had their flu shot. Right. But the severity of that infection is dramatically uh, reduced. Uh, and I really, honestly, listeners, I don't think that's debatable. If I'm wrong, please, please tell me, as I, I know you will. Uh, but but I, don't, I don't think that's wrong. And uh, so I would get a flu shot, Tom. What do you, what do you think? I got mine again, and I get one every year. Now, admittedly, the, the the results are that it's probably less it's less effective than the COVID vaccines available in the U.S., but it still can help reduce the uh, severity of disease, uh, which is a good thing. And unlike uh, COVID, which was mostly uh, fatal, the older you got or the more uh, comorbidities you had, influenza is kind of bimodal. It affects young kids, and the elderly. So it's not just at the old end of the age spectrum. It's also at the young end where it can be bad. Well said. And, you know, that was hypothesized some with COVID, but we're not new to influenza and RSV as our as our guests will help us understand. This is, this is nothing novel. We've been dealing with these viruses for a very long time, which means we've got a tremendous amount of public health experience uh, through the decades as to how these viruses behave and how the population of people behave when they're affected or infected with these viruses. Yeah, I don't know about you, but I've had more patients cancel their surgery in the last several weeks than I've had, you know, since the the beginning of the COVID pandemic. Yes. It's just, have you too? Yeah, exactly. I, I just had that this week. And the nurse told me your next case is canceled. Um, they tested positive. And I thought, oh, COVID. She said, no, no, no. I didn't mean COVID. I mean influenza. Um, but exactly. I mean, people are, are sick. Um, and they, they have to cancel work and miss school. And you know, it's it's a real pain to have influenza. No yeah, way. and a staff member couldn't come in because their uh, child's school closed because they had 23% of kids sick. Uh, somebody else didn't have school because too many of the teachers were sick. Um, and this, you know, looking at the flu intensity across the country, I mean, states almost I'd say 80% of the states are in a, a severe range uh, for flu. It's just nuts. So we'll get some perspective from Gwyneth uh, Spader. But before that, you must endure another medical trivia question. And the category, the lungs, since we're talking about respiratory infections. So <laughs> lower respiratory infections include all infections below the level of the larynx or the voice box which starts at the top of the trachea or the windpipe. So these infections include the lungs. So here's some basic questions about the lungs. Four questions, but they're easy. Well, they should, they're easy and quick answers. How many lobes does each side of the lung possess? How many on the left? How many on the right? Two, is the right lung or the left lung taller from highest to lowest part? Three, is the right lung or left lung wider? One of them is. And for which lung can hold more air, the left or the right? So we'll be back with these lung-related questions after our interview with Gwyneth Spader, which is coming up next after the break here on Dr. Doctor. Welcome back to Dr. Doctor. We have with us now Dr. Gwyneth Spader, a pediatrician from North Carolina who attended the University of Dallas in Texas, where she graduated with a degree in what else? Political philosophy. Helps to become a good pediatrician. She then attended the John Hopkins School of Medicine, a little school, I think, somewhere near Baltimore, uh, graduating in 2005. She's board certified pediatrician. She's practiced in both community emergency rooms and private practice settings. She also completed a certificate in healthcare ethics. That's a national Catholic Bioethics Center, and she's published several articles pertaining to vaccine ethics. She's also served as guest editor of the National Catholic Bioethics Center quarterly focused on pediatric issues. She's a recurrent presenter at Theology of the Body workshops for teens and for natural family planning and marriage prep in the Diocese of Raleigh, North Carolina. She's a member of the Catholic Medical Association Triangle Guild. She lives in Wake Forest, North Carolina with her husband and three children. Welcome back to Dr. Dr. Gwyneth. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. 
Hey, so what is the big deal in pediatric hospitals across the country? Why are some nurses complaining about the state of these units? And why the heck are some of them even asking the president to declare a national state of emergency? Um, I think there is a, a, a crisis of sorts in, in pediatric hospitals right now. And, and the crisis comes from what I would call a mismatch between the number of pediatric patients requiring uh, hospital level care and the number of beds available to provide mm. that care. And I think it's important to understand when people in the medical world speak of beds, we're not just speaking of a piece of furniture. We're actually speaking <laughs> of a combination of a piece of furniture in a hospital with staff available to take care of the person in that bed. So I, my understanding is that this is less a problem of physical space and more a problem of staffing. Both nurses and uh, doctors have left the medical field in, in large numbers over the past few years, and those people have not necessarily been uh, replaced yet. So we have uh, kids pouring into the ERs, they need to be admitted, and there's just not available beds to put them there. So they end up mm. camping out in the ER for hours, if not days, and it leads to an incredible backlog. Well, Gwyneth, I mean, you know, if we could just imagine that there was life before the pandemic, uh, you know, if we think back to 2017, 2018, and those happy years, you know, we, had, we had RSV then, we had influenza then, and we've had each of those for a quite long time. But yeah. is, is there something different about today with these two viruses versus back in the pre-pandemic years? I, I think it's a great question. I think it is... Not necessarily that we know that there's something different this year about the RSV strain or the influenza strain, but this combination of uh, resources and a cohort of pediatric patients who were so isolated over the past couple of years due to masking and social distancing that they were not exposed to these illnesses. Um, and they are all being exposed at once. So instead of one year's worth of young infants, we're talking about two or three years worth of young infants that are seeing these illnesses for the first time. So have we proven that masking and distancing is effective for reducing influenza and RSV? I would say we have proven that without a doubt. I mean, I, I think that we there's all sorts of interesting debates still to be had about the role of masking in, in various situations. But um, right. it's actually fascinating to me when I was preparing for this and I was on the CDC website to look at the influenza curves. Um, if you you can pull up, um, you know, by yes. year, the rates of influenza. And it, it literally, there is no curve in the 2020, 2021 uh, graph. No, it's, nothing. It's, a, it's a blank graph. And the RSV curve didn't completely disappear like that, but it did go down substantially. And I think the only possible explanation is this combination of masking and social distancing. So we know that it works for those, not that we are doing those same things because we value other things more than that right now. So we're back to, to where we are now. So is it like two or three years worth of kids now that would have been spread out are now getting something all at once? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's probably the the simplest way to look at it and the most logical explanation for this. Um, and then you combine that with probably uh, less resources. And also, frankly, parents who are not used to seeing sick children. Um, oh. I think that there is an entire cohort of parents who, if they did not have kids before COVID, have never not watched it. their children <laughs> Get their young children be sick. And I think all of us as parents can remember wow. back to how terrifying it is the first time your baby is sick. Um, and all of those people uh, are rushing to, to <laughs> see medical attention at once. Yeah. <laughs> now, Gwyneth, what is this, this phrase, immunity gap? This idea that kids are reduced contact with other kids and as a result, they've not been exposed to stuff that they're usually exposed to. Is, is there something there to that? I think there is something there to that. I hear it referred to in a variety of ways. 
Um, the phrase I do not like is weakened immunity. I, I don't think we have any evidence that there's anything wrong with these kids' immune system. Right. It's oh, simply sure. that they just have not had the training camps that used to be the normal uh, <laughs> experience of your first few years of life, especially if you were in daycare or preschool or Mother's mm-hmm. Day Out programs or what have you. Those, those literally did not exist. So you can now have a two or three-year-old who is entering the Petri dish for the first time. Um, and instead of having... Mm-hmm you know, three years of slow exposure is getting hit with with everything all at once. So I, I think there's probably going to be some very interesting studies to be done about immune development in children over time. Um, it's going to take a while for us to sort all of this out. I, I don't know what the long-term immune development for a kid who, say, was born a couple years before the pandemic, got the first two years of normal exposure, then everything came to a grinding halt and then jumped right back into kindergarten. Like, does that make that immune system somehow different than someone who went through kind of more typically as we all did? Um, I don't know. Time will tell. Wow. So, so well, let's, focus on, let's focus on RSV yes. a little bit, because it sounds like that's kind of the big story, at least uh, from the kid's perspective. Yeah. Uh, walk us through that. What exactly is RSV? So RSV is the shorthand term for respiratory syncytial virus. Um, It's actually an incredibly common virus. Uh, It's been well known and described since the 1950s. I did not know this. I learned this while getting ready for this show. It was initially called the chimpanzee coryza virus. Um, oh, after it was initially, yeah, <laughs> it was initially discovered in a chimpanzee animal research lab where there was an outbreak, uh, and it was only after some studies were done that they realized that the virus had actually originated from the human handlers of these animals, not the chimpanzees. <laughs> um, so it was renamed, but it, you know, it's a very common virus. It it uh, starts out as an upper respiratory infection with your typical sore throat, runny nose, fever, possibly headache, um, and then. For most, it will kind of descend to a very mild lower respiratory infection with some coughing. Um, But there are those for whom the lower respiratory uh, system involvement becomes much more severe and you have significant coughing, wheezing, difficulty with oxygenation. Um, And that's that's what gets particularly young babies um, into trouble. Yeah, so I heard two questions there, so I'll try and tackle them. Um, You can definitely get it more than once, unfortunately. Um, I don't think there's any limit to the number of times you can get it. Uh, The strains do change over time. I think, you know, each subsequent exposure is likely to be a little bit less severe, uh, but it's certainly not a once and done illness. Prior to COVID, almost universally, everyone had their first RSV infection before the age of two. Um, and that's independent of whether you were in daycare or at home. It just it was so prevalent that everybody got it. So it primarily affects the very young and then also, of course, the very old, those with chronic lung diseases, those with significant um, cardiac diseases, and anyone who's immunocompromised. So how has this year's RSV curve differed from other years pre-pandemic? Yeah, it's mostly the timing that's been so strange. I mean, when I, uh, when I was in training, and then even, you know, the first 10 or 12 years that I was in practice, um, RSV existed between October and March. And that was it. I mean, it was written in stone, it would never have even occurred to me to test or think about RSV outside of those months. Um, And then something very strange happens during the pandemic. um, And RSV kind of went away for that first winter. So, you know, fall of 2020, winter of 2021, and then had a strange resurgence in the spring of 2021 and the summer of 2021, two little blips which I think caught everybody off guard (laughs) once they realized uh, what was happening uh, because none of us had ever seen it at these times of years. And this was particularly problematic for the most vulnerable patients, our premature infants, who are typically receive um, uh, a prophylactic monoclonal antibody uh, during the the typical RSV month, so from October to March, and no one was prepared Ah. or even thought to have it ready in April or June of 2021. So I didn't realize that preemies get it. So how early do they have to be born? When are they given it? How are they given it? Yeah, so um, the most recent guidelines uh, limit it to 
there's, there's incredibly specific guidelines, but in general, you need to be born before 29 weeks gestation and or have um, significant chronic lung disease or cardiac congenital cardiac disease to be eligible during your first RSV season that you are kind of out in the world. Um, and it was, it's a once a month injection um, that's given in your pediatrician's office, typically given from October to March. But by the summer of 2021, people were starting to think about, oh, well, maybe we have to rethink how we dose this. It's a very expensive medicine. So that's why it's given to only the most high risk infants um, and only when it's approved to be given. Um, but there was approval given this past summer for infants to start getting it. And uh, the the American Academy of Pediatrics actually just put out a press release two or three weeks ago suggesting that we just continue giving it. Um, if so, if there were babies who started it this summer, even when they reach their typical five-month allotment, they continue to get it if there's continued high rates of RSV in their community. Well, now, you've mentioned a couple of times season, uh, but this one isn't following the rules. So how long do you think this season, so to speak, uh, is going to last, or can you say? I don't know that there's any way to say. If I was being really optimistic, um, nationally speaking, and here in North Carolina, the numbers are falling. They've been falling for about um, a month now. So I'm hopeful that we're over the worst of this surge, but I don't have any way to know if we're going to have another spring blip like we've had the last two years, or if this will be it until next fall and it will kind of settle back down into a fall winter virus again. How are the ages of those affected now different than the ages of the kids who got it, say, five years ago? Um, the littlest babies are still the, the largest cohort that are requiring um, either ER help or, or hospital admission. But I'm hearing from my pediatric colleagues around the country that they, particularly the those of those friends and colleagues who work in hospital systems, that they are admitting more um, preschool and older toddler age children than they ever remember having done before, and that they're seeing a lot more um, secondary bacterial pneumonias than they remember oh. seeing in these age groups sure. before. Um, and again, is that this difference in immune exposure over the past two years? Is there something different about this year's RSV strain? I just don't think we know yet. Yeah. So Gwyneth, if, if you're looking at a child in the emergency room um, that has RSV, what's going through your mind as the pediatrician in terms of trying to decide, does this child have to, do we have to find a bed in the hospital mm -hmm. for this child or are they going to be okay to go home? Yeah, yeah, it's a great question. I, and I did this actually for a couple of years right out of residency. I worked in a, a community ER in Baltimore and I, I can't tell you how many hundreds, if not thousands of RSV babies I've had that thought process for. So, you know, first and foremost, I look at their breathing. Um, mm. are, are they maintaining oxygen levels uh, on their own or adequate oxygen levels on their own? Um, and then you know, presuming they are doing that, uh, can they coordinate eating and breathing at the same time? So um, for the most part, these are infants who are eating either by nursing or taking a bottle. And it actually requires a fair amount of coordination to be able to suck and swallow and breathe um, <laughs> all, you know, and not choke uh, all at the yeah. same time. So often what will actually get these babies admitted to the hospital is not necessarily their oxygen levels, but their inability to stay hydrated. Um, oh. So it's, it's one of those two things that will push you towards admission. So I understand that some of these kiddos have uh, a lot of wheezing, like asthma patients. Yes, yes, they do wheeze. It's a different kind of wheezing than um, asthma. Um, and pediatricians who have been doing this long enough will not 100%, but with some certainty, be able to put a stethoscope on the back of a, of a baby or toddler and say, oh, yes, that sounds like RSV. Um, so it, it's definitely wheezing as we would define wheezing in that there's constriction of the airways that's making a noise when air passes through it. Um, but there seems to be a different uh, underlying pathophysiology because these kids do not respond to albuterol the way a typical asthmatic wow. would. Um, so when I was initially training, and I'm not that old, um, we, gave <laughs> all not. Of these, <laughs> we gave all of these kids albuterol because kids who wheezed got albuterol. That's what you did. Mm -hmm. It was supposed to relax the airways and, and make it 
it easier for them to breathe. And a lot of them also got steroids because that's what we did for our asthmatics. Um, and it seemed to help. But um, there were new guidelines released. I think it was 2014, 2015, looking at several um, meta-analyses and some good studies that really showed that neither albuterol or steroid use decreased rate of initial hospitalization or length of hospital stay. Um, so it is now no longer recommended um, in the treatment of these RSV patients. Although I will say, particularly this year where we have this cohort of older children being affected by RSV, if they have a strong history of wheezing independent of RSV, I will still try albuterol in my office because those kids we know have reactive airways. Um, and well, whatever the trigger is, the hope is that we can calm their reactive airways with the albuterol. Yeah. Gwyneth, I mean, RSV to me sounds like a viral infection just begging for a vaccine. Um, what's the story with RSV and vaccination? Yeah, it, it would be fantastic, right? It would maybe put me out of a job in the winter months. But um, <laughs> um, it's, it's, it may be coming. I, I, you know, I think um, there's a couple reasons. I actually uh, found a reading on this very interesting. There's a couple reasons why we don't have one yet. Um, there's both a historical and a scientific reason. So the scientific reason is that apparently the, the target antigen similar to the spike protein that we all got used to hearing about with the COVID vaccine, that the target antigen in RSV is something called the F protein. Um, and it is what is known in the immunological world as a shape shifter, so that ah. it changes form as it attaches to the target cell and you know integrates itself uh, into the host. And that makes it harder to design a vaccine, an effective vaccine against. Um, so there's that issue. There's the issue that, you know, as we talked about earlier, you can get RSV more than once. So you can't just design a vaccine that's going to mimic the natural immunological response of people who have had it because it won't last. So you have to you have to come up with something more than what uh, wow. the humans do uh, on their own. The human immune system does on its own. And then there's a historic reason. So in the 1960s, there was an attempt made to uh, create an RSV vaccine. And um, it was given to a cohort of young children. And they tolerated the initial vaccine very well. But then when they were subsequently exposed to RSV, several of them had exaggerated immune responses, ended up hospitalized, and two of them actually died. Um, oh. And it was a horrible moment in vaccine history. And I think it scared a lot of people off for years, if not decades. In my reading, it seems that that vaccine, they were trying to target the post-fusion F shape, whereas the more modern vaccines are going over after the pre-fusion F shape. Um, but that's about the level of my immunology understanding. So, But the good news is there is an RSV vaccine both Pfizer and GSK have ones in phase three trials in older adults. Um, so Pfizer has released um, fairly promising looking data from a randomized control trial in adults older than 60 that showed up to an 85% decrease in um, severe disease. And so the hope is that like the COVID vaccines, if it works well for the adults, we'll be able to start trials uh, in children shortly. Well, if we if we move from RSV a little to what you might call regular flu or influenza, um, and that would be um, great. Right after this break that we have scheduled right now on Doctor Doctor, we'll be back more because Chris is chopping at the bit to ask a great question to our guest Gwyneth Spader. Well, welcome back to Doctor Doctor, and welcome to more discussions on fascinating things viral. Um, just before we took a break, we were about to start talking about influenza. So moving from RSV to what you might call regular old flu, uh, for short, or influenza. So where are we with kids and influenza? And is there something special going on this year uh, with that problem as well? Yeah, I think similar to RSV, although it's clearly a different illness, um, there 
appears to be kind of a huge surge in pediatric flu cases and those flu cases requiring hospital attention than we've seen since easily since the 2019 season. Um, and if the numbers continue as they're projected to continue, because we're very early in the flu season, um, mm-hmm. it's it's being suggested that this will be the the worst flu season since 2009, which was the swine flu pandemic that I cut my teeth on as a brand new pediatric ER attending. So yeah, it it looks to be what we in medicine call a quote unquote bad flu season, meaning more individuals will get sick. Those that get sick will get sicker than usual. Mm. More people will require um, ER or hospital attention to get over it. Now, again, you you mentioned earlier when you're looking at a child trying to decide if they come into the hospital, is that the same issue with influenza? Is a child more or less likely to need hospitalization with influenza? Yeah, I think it depends um, a bit about upon the age of the patient. Um, Uh, So the very young babies, the six months and under, um, I typically see do better with influenza, generally speaking, than they do with RSV. Um, Whereas the older kids, particularly those with underlying health conditions like bad asthma, um, are Mm. likely to do worse with the flu than they are with RSV. So there's a bit of an age split there. How do the influenza symptoms differ from the RSV symptoms, say, in in kids before school age? I mean, there's a lot of overlap. And so I don't know that it's necessarily possible for a parent or even a pediatrician to look at a child and say, oh, this is flu or, oh, this is RSV. You know, as I think I said earlier, there's a sound to the lung exam for RSV that's slightly different uh, than that for influenza. Um, But, you know, both are going to start with fever and headache and sore throat um, and runny nose and cough. I I tend to see higher fevers um, and more persistent fevers with influenza. And in the older kids, more complaints of kind of body aches and just feeling bad. Whereas RSV, you know, in kids who are old enough to, to express anything about it is really more a bad head cold. It's, it's more just the amount of congestion up in the head. Um, so, but yeah, there's, there's a lot of overlap between the two. So, you know, we all probably, Tom and I especially have a little PTSD from talking about vaccines in the last two years. Um, but I mentioned earlier, you know, the flu shot for children, I, I think it's not controversial. Now I'll probably get hate mail for that, but but maybe you could speak a little bit to the flu shot uh, for children and how you counsel parents to find their way sort of through that. that topic. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, I, I would agree with you. I, I don't think it's controversial in the way that the COVID vaccine was or is um, still considered by some to be controversial. Um, with that vaccine, I think parents that I spoke to were concerned about how new it was and was it safe. And um, with flu, um, I do find that a lot of parents decline it, but it's more so because they just don't think it's necessary. Um, And, you know, they don't like giving their kid a shot or the kid doesn't want a shot. I have a lot of parents who will turn to their child and say, do you want it? Which I think is a crazy (laughs) thing. (laughs) <laughs> really? <laughs> sure, mom, I would like an extra needle. Um, but yeah, I can't tell you how many times I've seen that. So um, what, what I try and tell parents is that it, it, it is true. The vast majority of healthy children who get the flu will be, you know, uncomfortable for a few days, and then they will be just fine. But I encourage the flu vaccine for everyone, um, and I give it to my entire family, including my children, every year um, for two reasons. One, um, to try and decrease community spread as much as possible um, for the more vulnerable in our population. But two, because every year there are, you know, a hundred or so previously healthy children who die from the flu. And almost universally, those children are unvaccinated. So what I tell parents is that I can't guarantee that getting the flu vaccine will mean that your child will not get the flu, but I do it so that they stay out of the hospital and they don't die. What do we know about the strains of this year's flu? Are they bad ones, good ones, in between? (laughs) 
So the prominent strain seems to be this H3N2. Um, I think I have those letters and numbers That's correct. Right. Um, and that was what was seen almost exclusively in the Southern Hemisphere, which is always our sneak peek for the flu season. Um, but when I looked at the most recent numbers here in the United States, it was 75 to 80% H3N2, and then the other 20 to 25% was H1N1. Um, the H3N2 seems to be a slightly more aggressive strain um, than H1N1, so it would be nice if that 25% could spread a little bit more rapidly, but we'll have to see. The good news um, is that both of those strains are included in this year's flu vaccine, which should give us um, some benefit. Um, and in the Southern Hemisphere, it was described as moderately effective. You know, each year they quote between 40 to 60 percent efficacy right. for the flu vaccine. And, you know, the numbers out of the Southern Hemisphere look to be about 50 percent. So right smack in the middle. So I would say moderate is an accurate description. But again, so I, I would say with that 50%, people would say, oh, you know, I might as well flip a coin. It's not quite that simple. That's 50% to <laughs> not get the flu. But that doesn't take into effect or take, take into account how sick you get with the flu, whether you need to go sure. to the hospital for the flu. Um, so even when you catch it, it will give your immune system a head start to fighting it off. So Gwyneth, compared to pre-COVID, how are vaccine rates among patients, pediatric patients, for flu and for other vaccines? Has there been a, a shift? Yeah, they're down. Um, you know, vaccine hesitancy is something any pediatrician has dealt with their entire career. Um, it certainly existed long before COVID, but um, there's more in my practice, more parents concerned, more parents questioning. Um, there's been a lot of bad information spread about over the last two or three years, and it's and it's understandably confusing and upsetting parents um, who are trying to make the best decision for their children. In general, I find I can talk parents through it if they're willing to come in and talk about it. Um, so that's been my personal experience. Nationally, we are definitely down a percentage point or two um, in vaccine rates, which doesn't sound like a lot. But when you talk about the pediatric population of the entire United States, is an awful lot of children running around behind on their vaccines. That's a combination of, of vaccine hesitancy, but also just, you know, pediatric offices were closed for a long time. And even when they opened, parents were hesitant to bring their kids in and, unless they really felt they needed to be seen. And so we just have a lot of catch up to do. Um, and I think, I think we will get those kids caught up, um, but it's going to take some time. So what do you think the rest of this season looks like? I, well, I should say right now, how many kids are in the hospital compared to a normal flu season? So I'm not sure if I have the exact numbers for flu, but I did look at it for, um, for uh, no, I'm sorry, I do have the, I was going to say, I don't have the numbers for RSV, I do have the numbers for flu. So in my county alone, Wake County, North Carolina, we are admitting about 80 pediatric patients a week for complications of the flu. Um, the national statistics, um, I, I think it was about 30 kids under the age of four, under the age of four per 100,000, and um, 17 to 18 kids between four and 18 uh, over, you know, per 100,000 across the country. Um, and those numbers are higher than anything we've seen in the past three or four years, but it's still so early in the season. I don't know how it'll compare to numbers for years prior to that. So is it a higher percentage of kids with the flu now are sick enough to be hospitalized compared to other years? I think it's both a higher percentage are sicker and there is more flu. Um, so it's spreading faster in school systems and daycares and preschools and church communities. So, so a local school here, they closed because they had 23% of their kids out to do some deep cleaning in the school. Does that deep cleaning have any effect on spreading the flu that you know of? I, I don't know that the deep cleaning does. Separating the kids for a period of time, I, I think, probably is effective. Um, but it's it's not a long-term solution unless we want to go back to, you know, the early COVID pandemic days and just shut everything down, which I don't think anybody is suggesting at this point. So what symptoms should worry a parent that they should bring in a kid with a respiratory infection this season? 
Yeah, that's a great question. So um, I always tell my parents, first and foremost, um, you know, how is the kid breathing? Uh, is it different than how they're normally breathing? Um, if they have a high fever, they're going to be breathing fast. So define um, high fever. <laughs> is it a hundred? <laughs> yeah, so I guess that's, that's a fair question. So I define a fever as anything over a hundred point four. You will see a, a high fever. What's a high fever? Yeah, high fever. I, you know, I've sat at home with one of my own kids at 105.5, and I was starting to think, eh, that's getting up there, but uh, we stayed at home. <laughs> so, you know, it's not the number, it's what the number is doing to the child. So you'll start to see increases in how fast the kid is breathing, probably around 102, 103. But if your child is 103 and is willing to cuddle up with you on the couch and is coughing and you know, doesn't have much of an appetite, but is happy with their popsicle and wants to watch cartoons, you do not need to come in. Um, if ah. your child is 101, but won't even lick a popsicle and kind of just moans and won't interact with you, that child needs to be seen. Um, so I really try and encourage parents not to focus on the number, but how their child is looking um, and how hard they are working to breathe. Are they having to use extra muscles in their ribs or in their belly to move air in and out? Um, and are they willing to have treats that you wouldn't otherwise give them? A child that turns away ice cream and popsicles probably needs to be seen by someone. Well, I'll tell you, if my if my 14-year-old cuddles with me on the couch, I'm bringing him in because something's wrong. <laughs> okay, fair enough. I'm mostly speaking about the little kids. Oh, okay. All right. Well, I mean, along those lines, though, you, you you deal with controversy every day. It's the nature of your practice. So we'll we'll go on to something even more controversial, right? Fantastic. The use of antibiotics. Oh, okay. So, all right. You know, I know you hear this all of the time that, you know, my child needs antibiotics. Can't you just call them in something? They're coughing. They've got a fever of a hundred and something. Yeah. You know, here's your chance to talk to parents <laughs> as as the expert. Make us understand when does a child need antibiotics for a respiratory infection? Yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, so for me, that decision is always based both on the history of the illness and the physical exam of the child. So, um, you know, almost all, I'm trying to think if there's any exceptions to this, almost all, you know, upper respiratory and even um, early lower respiratory infections in the pediatric population start as viral illnesses. Antibiotics, yeah treat bacterial illnesses. So antibiotics are going to do nothing for the standard head cold. They will do nothing for RSV and they won't help influenza. Um, but the children that do need antibiotics are children who develop what we call secondary bacterial infections. So bacteria love mucus. Um, and kids with head colds have a lot of mucus. So it gets stuck in their ears, it gets stuck in their nose, it gets stuck in their chest, um, and bacteria get in there and, and can cause trouble. And that's where antibiotics are indicated. So a kid who's on the first day or two with a fever and a runny nose and a cough is almost never going to benefit from antibiotics. A child who had those symptoms seemed to get better for a few days, and then all of a sudden the fever comes back and they're not sleeping well, and they say their ear hurts or they're pulling on their ear, that child needs to be seen again for a possible ear infection that would require antibiotics. And in an older child, like your 14-year-old, um, you know, a kid who had a fever and a cough and a runny nose and felt like crud Monday and Tuesday, and then by Friday was feeling a lot better, Saturday thought we were in the clear, and then Sunday, again, febrile, chest hurts, coughing, no appetite. I want to listen to that child's lungs to make sure he doesn't have a pneumonia. That's pretty interesting because, you know, the answer is that proverbial, it depends, isn't it? Yeah. But I mean, it sounds to me like a message to parents is just because your child doesn't need antibiotics today doesn't mean that they will not need antibiotics five to seven days from now. Yes. And so that's hugely, yeah, thank you for, uh, for that, because I think it, it's understandably frustrating to parents when they're seen initially, they're told, oh, this is just a virus. And then they come back five days later and they're given antibiotics. And it's, it's on us as the pediatricians to make sure we're explaining, no, it's not that something was missed at your initial visit. It's that these uh, illnesses and these diseases evolve over time. And so what we're treating now just wasn't present at the beginning. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, 
particularly with the way people um, use urgent cares and minute clinics and all this kind of stuff today, there can be a lot of confusion if you're seeing multiple different providers within the course of one illness. So maybe a a word or two about why you're reluctant to not just pan prescribe antibiotics for everyone. You're not just being stingy, um, (laughs) but but maybe speak, speak to that issue of sort of Antibiotic stewardship. Stewardship, sure. So, yeah, antibiotic stewardship is a term those of us in medicine spend a lot of time talking and thinking about. And it's basically the concept that um, antibiotics are wonderful drugs, right? I mean, they've saved countless lives and um, prolonged Mm. countless lives. But they are not risk-free. They do have side effects. In children, the most common side effects are um, upset stomach, rashes, sometimes true allergic reactions, um, all of which are unpleasant. But even perhaps more important than that is the idea that the bacteria that we are trying to treat are smart. Um, And they are constantly trying to find ways around the antibiotics that we have to kill them. And the more we give that person antibiotics that aren't needed, the more the bacteria out in the world have a chance to kind of take a look at that antibiotic and figure out a way around it. And so they become less and less effective over time. And we get what are known as drug resistant bacteria. Um, and that becomes a huge problem um, uh, kind of on a social national level. Yeah. Thank you. Well said. So Gwyneth, to go back to, um, differentiating bacterial from viral. So the color of mucus and the level of the fever do not differentiate between the two. Thank you. Because so many people think- 100% correct. I don't care if the mucus is purple or, you know, fuchsia (laughs) or, you know, certainly green, yellow, whatever. No, it really, you know, I, I- it is one of the most common things I hear about, but now it's green. So they need antibiotics. No, it's not true. It's not true. It, you know, it's just not true. Uh, believe me, you know, I have three kids of my own. If I could make these, you know, runny noses and nighttime coughs and all of this go away with a dose of antibiotics, I would be doing it. But I, I don't give it to my own kids and I don't give it to my patients. unless. It's so what is the best treatment for somebody that has these symptoms and they have a viral well, infection? Yeah, it's, you know, it's grandma's remedies, it's rest, it's lots staying hydrated with lots of fluids, it's time, you know, if if your child is miserable from their fever, by all means, give them Tylenol or um, uh, acetaminophen or ibuprofen. but really, um, even in 2000, almost 23, we, we have very limited means of treating these illnesses other than supportive care. And when should they stay home from school? And when should they go back? Yeah, so this is interesting, right? Um, This has changed a lot throughout the pandemic. Um, So the the classic rules and the ones that I've more or less shifted back to at this point are, you know, 24 hours fever free, which again, I define as um, a fever as being over equal to or over 100.4 degrees Fahrenheit. So they should be fever free without medicine for 24 hours, Uh, no vomiting or diarrhea for 24 hours. And their cough should be under control enough that they're not going to be disruptive to the class. I mean, you know, unfortunately, some kids really do hack and hack and hack with these with these illnesses. And while they not may not be terribly infectious, it's just going to be disruptive. And it's, you know, the child is not going to learn well under those circumstances either. But I will say that I still have in my area many schools that are requiring negative viral testing to return to school. So I see a lot of kids who don't need to see a doctor but are just coming in for their nose swab. Wow. Gwyneth, thank you so much. This has been incredibly practical for our patients and uh, listeners. So God bless you. Hope to have you back. Thank you so much. It's always a pleasure. I appreciate it. Welcome back to Dr. Doctor and this fascinating discussion on all things respiratory. And that brings us to the answer to this episode's trivia question. We're just longing um, to understand the answer here, Tom. Yes, yes, we are. Four parts about the lungs. Number one, how many lobes does each side of the lung possess? Three on the right, two on the left. All right. And that's probably because the lung, the heart shifts a little to the left. Number two, is the right lung. We should probably point out you only have two lungs, but within each of those lungs, there's lobes um, and they're different left to right. 
That's right. And so is the right lung or the left lung taller from top to bottom? And actually, the left lung is taller because on the right side, the liver on the right pushes up the diaphragm to make that lung shorter. Number three, which lung is wider? Well, it's actually the right lung because the heart smushes the left to the side. I think that was the word they used in the article. And finally, which lung can hold more air? Again, it's a heart-related question. Pressing on the left, the right lung can hold more air. So now you know four more things about the lungs you may not have known before. But now let's hear some things again that were highlights from Gwyneth. And Chris, your top three takeaways. Well, it's no surprise that she's a terrific, uh, she's a terrific guest. She's an expert without, without sounding uh, stodgy and academic. Um, and so I, I think her parents, the parents of the children she cares for are lucky to have her most definitely. But I think one of the takeaways has to be that RSV is a big deal, right? I mean, it, it's serious. Um, it's a very serious respiratory infection, especially for uh, the premature babies and those that are ill, and even older children that have what we call comorbidities or other problems like congenital heart disease. So uh, we need to pay attention to RSV, stay up with what's happening in your community. Uh, and if there's any question, talk to your peds provider about it. You know, secondly, I think a very practical tip that she said about fever. It's not the number, it's what the number is doing to the child. Yes. Uh, so as she pointed out, if if your child has 103 fever, but they're they're snuggling with you, they're eating, they're acting pretty normal, um, that's not necessarily serious. They don't necessarily have to go in to be checked uh, around a bunch of other sick kids. Um, <laughs> yes. And then uh, I think it would be we would be remiss if we didn't mention this idea of antibiotic stewardship. So, mm. you know, kudos to all of our pediatric provider colleagues, like our co-host Dr. Andrew Malali, who are trying to do the right thing with antibiotics, and at the same time trying not to alienate the parents of their patients. But I thought she did a great job of pointing out that just because they say your child doesn't need antibiotics today on Monday because it's a viral infection. It may be a bacterial infection by Friday that's been allowed to set up because of all the mucus that the viral infection caused. So don't don't be afraid to recall your peds provider to go back and say, he or she got better, now they're sick again, because that second time, they really may need the antibiotics. And that was explained so well. Worth the price of the episode, which should be free for most of you who are listening to Dr. Doctor. And we thank you for doing that. You can find this and all of our old episodes on our website, drdoctor.org. Just click on episode archive at the top and you can search from over 300 episodes by topic or guest. And now we offer a video version of this podcast. You can just click on the YouTube link near the top of the homepage uh, at drdoctor.org. Uh, and check out the, the video version if you like. If you have a question, if you have a comment about you know something wrong that maybe Dr. McGovern said, uh, we'd like to hear about that. So <laughs> click on submit a question, give us ideas for episodes uh, or any questions that you want. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And this is Dr. Chris Stroud. We're signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-host. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at drdoctor.org. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Dr. Doctor Show and tune in for new episodes every Friday. Plus, find all our past episodes at drdoctor.org. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit Spokestreet.com.